Blog Talk Radio. edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and welcome to everyone who's joining me here live at Blog Talk Radio. I see, per usual, that everyone who's joining here live is doing the little refresh Thing and, and just starting to file into the chat room. Welcome, John Roberts, just Jean, Mark Griefer, Selfishness, Brian, some unspecified guest hanging out. Welcome, welcome. I guess we will see more coming in. Dominique, uh, Roger, some people are starting to file in. So yeah, that refresh thing is applicable, as far as I know, only to people who listen live. Somehow right at the beginning if you're if you're actually hanging online before the show starts, you have to refresh at the time that the show starts to be able to listen. Those of you who are listening on the podcast, if you want to come join live and join in the chat room, then that would be awesome. Uh, Justine says that she got sound going today while the music was still playing. It's probably the timing of the refresh. If you get lucky, I, I suppose sometimes. If you would like to check out program notes for today's show and have an idea of what I'm talking about, you go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com. I see Tim Peck just joined us over here at Blog Talk Radio. And thanks for sharing the show, Tim. I appreciate it when people do share links to the show, and, and you've been sharing them consistently on Twitter. So thanks very much for doing it. I noticed that today Tim decided that uh, he should change my title and he should let everybody know that I was going to talk about the Murr versus Wisconsin decision and its effect on property rights, as opposed to my kind of artier and more fun and appealing to me title, but maybe confusing to other people title, which is that the road to hell is paved with reasonable expectations. Um, you might have to be sort of a lawyer and in on all of this language in order to really appreciate that title. For me, that's, I guess, all that mattered. And when I first thought of the title on Saturday and I put it out there on Twitter, I immediately got a response from Tim Sandifer over at Goldwater Institute. And he loved it because we think, we think quite a bit alike about these issues. And I thought, okay, I have validation for my title because Tim Sandifer likes it. And that doesn't necessarily mean that my audience loves it. So thanks, Tim, for communicating the content of this show to everybody else. I am focusing on the Murr versus Wisconsin and the effect on property rights. And I have kind of some broader points 
that have been rattling around in my brain to make about that. I've also, in connection with Murr versus Wisconsin, put a question out there publicly on Facebook and, and shared it and promised that I would give the answer to that today. And this is this. I mean, you remember last week, what were we doing on this show last week? I was cheering the Supreme Court for a great ruling on free speech and saying that a good principled real, you know, ruling from the court on free speech can be so powerful that maybe it could even help the cause of rational discourse in the culture as well. So I was very high on the Supreme Court last week, and then now this week we're going to be saying what in the world are they doing to property rights? So the question that I asked, the way that I posed it is this. How is it that the same Supreme Court justices who are so excellent on freedom of expression are so terrible on property rights? And how can I say that it's the same Supreme Court justices? It's because the ruling from last week, the trademark ruling with the Slants case, that was unanimous. All the Supreme Court justices united and had very good statements in favor of freedom of expression. And then this week we get the 5-3 ruling. You know, Gorsuch wasn't uh, participating, but even if he had been, it would have been 5-4 and property rights would have lost and it still would have been Justice Kennedy's majority opinion that we'll take a quick look at. Um, it would have been that that would carry the day. So, you know, how is it? That's the answer that I've promised people during the show. So if you're tuning in and you're saying, okay, she promised the answer, I'm going to give you the answer. What I want to talk about first is just this case, this Murr versus Wisconsin. What's it all about? And why am I saying that it is such a terrible decision for property rights? I'm not unique in saying it's a terrible decision for property rights. And in fact, I'm relying on the analysis of Ilya Soman over at the Vala Conspiracy blog at Washington Post for analysis. Yeah, I'm an attorney, but I go through and trust my, um, you know, my, my peers, my smart, like-minded peers over at the Vala Conspiracy for stuff like this. And then I do a little bit of a riff in a philosophical direction therefrom. So I hope you're going to enjoy the show. If you want to call in and discuss anything, this issue, any of the other things you see in the program notes at the blog, again, the blog is don'tletitgo.com. You can check out all of the program notes there. Um, if you want to call in and talk to me about this, the number at which to do so is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. And if you end up wanting to talk, then you'll press the one button to let me know that you're not just in the queue listening to the show, but that you'd also like to ask a question or make a comment. Uh, so if you do go to the program notes, one thing you'll notice, though, is that the very first little entry that I have, if I recall correctly, oh, I've got to shut off my little Facebook sounds going over there. Okay, I read you the question, right? I wanted to give you the exact wording of the question. I'm going to shut my Facebook so I don't need to see that anymore, and I'm not going to get the little notifications. Um, so, again, at the blog program notes, first entry is the project. The reason I put that there again is that I have, to my knowledge, finally completed the bulk of my work on the Atlas Shrug graphic novel adaptation. There are some things that I'll still assist with uh, throughout the rest. I might end up doing some of 
the lettering work and things like that, which would make the you know, make sure that the script actually is translated accurately onto the pages. But in terms of the main bulk of the condensation work, it's done. And, and the thing that I left to the very last was the thing that was the most daunting, which was condensing Galt's speech, many of you are familiar with the, the book, in the printed copy of the book that I have, which is a large format paperback, 60 pages. And I cut it down to 13 pages full of short squib quotations and a string of quotations that you know, you're going to be able to tell from the context that it's only a portion of the speech that you're reading, but that string of quotations actually reads and hangs together as somewhat of a whole that's coherent, logical, and as far as I can tell, it serves the main purposes that the speech is supposed to serve in terms of the plot and, and you know, the logic of it. So... I'm still waiting to hear from the editor. I've heard from the cartoonist, Bosch Faustin, that he thinks it's a good rendition of the speech that, you know, it's pretty incredible to look at something that is that short and still get the idea this is Galt's speech. So I was pleased with it. The cartoonist is, and now I'm just waiting to hear back from the editor to see if I, I did this last chunk, the most daunting chunk of the assignment okay. When I made a post about this, I thanked Ankar Gatti, and I want to do it again. He has an essay in a collection that was edited by Robert Mayhew, Essays on Atlas Shrugged. And in that essay, he clearly lays out and makes a case for who the intended audience is, particularly for certain parts of the speech and what the purpose of the speech is in the novel, why it's indispensable. It's not just some propaganda tract within the novel. Um and so I was able to use that as a starting point, kind of give me a skeleton of what really had to be there logically in terms of the plot of the novel. And then filling it out, filling it out philosophically, I had a lot of options and different ways that I could go. And I was really happy with it. So when the, the graphic novel eventually comes out in a few years is what it's probably going to be, right? Because it's going to take a while for Bosch Faustin to draw it um, when it does and you see it. I hope you're going to think, you know, it's decent. Now, you, everybody would look at this and they'd say, oh, well, if I did it, I would do it differently. And, yeah, you probably would, but I think I did it well, and I think it's going to be a good introduction to the speech for the graphic novel readers, and I'm excited about it. James in the chat room says, Yahoo, yes. Um, I think he was saying Yahoo about that. Uh, Rob in the chat room says, I don't think Blog Talk likes Chrome. Every browser has its glitches right now. Safari has some weird glitches going on. I think I have to do a an update on my computer and stuff. There's Facebook has some glitches right now. Facebook is still not resolving the um, the links properly for Blog Talk. Now Rob is saying, did you see Trump's tweet about the Washington Post? He called it Amazon Washington Post. Hi. Um, so it's going to be Amazon Washington Post, Amazon Whole Foods, Amazon Life, right? Uh, not necessarily bad. There's some bad policy decisions that Amazon makes at times, but I get a lot of value from Amazon, and including the Washington Post. By the way, thank you to those of you who are supporters of the show again, because now I'm subscribing to Washington Post, too. You guys are helping to keep me 
informed. Vala conspiracy is a tremendous value, as we'll see. Okay, so that was a lot of preliminaries. Let's dive in. As I said, the main topic, Murr versus Wisconsin. Ilya Soman says it's by far the most important property rights case of the term, both a setback, he says, for constitutional property rights and likely to create confusion and uncertainty going forward. He makes makes a joke later that because of all the confusion and uncertainty and all the litigation that is going to be necessary because of this ruling, he says it's going to make lawyers' income great again. A lot of business for lawyers. So I guess if you're an attorney and you can completely drop context about the value of property rights in your life, you could think maybe this is good news for you. Now, what are the facts of the case, the basic facts of the case? The Murr family was trying to sell one of two contiguous, you know, touching borders lots that they own. They had two lots of land connected by a border, contiguous lots. They wanted to sell one of them. But in the process of trying to sell it, they found out that the sale was blocked by land use regulations that rendered the lot largely worthless. So imagine this, you know, if you are a family, it's typical that the property that you own, especially if it's residential and stuff, is a bulk of your wealth. It represents a bulk of your wealth. And if you have, say, these two contiguous lots, these two lots, yours and the one next to it, and you think you need to sell off the one next to it in order to have money for who knows what, maybe to pay for your health insurance these days, thanks to Obamacare, suddenly you find out that that lot that you thought was a store of value for you, that there was some value there that you could rely upon, you found out that it is now largely worthless, that you cannot sell it. That's devastating. Uh, He says, well, you know, this is bad enough. He says, the implications of the ruling reach far beyond these specific facts. He says, many property owners own contiguous lots that could potentially be affected by the decision. This includes homeowners, small businesses, charities, and others. Now, how is it the Supreme Court gets involved in these sort of cases. It's through the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. The takings clause requires government to pay, quote, just compensation anytime it takes, quote unquote, private property for public use. And then the question is, could something that might otherwise be a taking cease to be a taking merely because the owner of the lot that is affected by the taking also happens, just happens to own the other property that is contiguous to it, the one that's on the border. And what this ruling says is that in at least some cases, the government can avoid compensating property owners for taking their land merely because they also own the lot next door. That's bad enough. But then in addition, there is this vague balancing test and it's put under the rubric of reasonable expectations. What are the reasonable expectations of property owners? So you have this big, vague test, and I'm going to tell you about the nature of that test in a minute, that governs whether or not you are going to be the unlucky next property owner who will suffer a taking by the government and not be compensated for it, simply because you happen to own the lot next door to the one that you're selling. That's 
the sort of evil that the court has wrought, that Kennedy has wrought. Perhaps on the way out the door, it's not clear whether he's retiring, but this might be one of the horrible things that he does on the way out. Uh, Let's back up a little bit. How is it that there is a taking, right? Because it's not that this is an eminent domain case, right? It's not Kilo. By the way, this is, what, the 12th anniversary of Kilo as well, said Selman as, he, as he's writing this commentary on the Murr case. It's, it's horrible and ominous. Kilo, you know, where the government took it and uh, said that basically you can give from private property owner to private property owner through an eminent domain action, and it still is constitutional. Terrible, and we've been reeling from that. And now we're going to be reeling from this. Um, how is this a taking, though? This is a taking perhaps, or it could be a taking, because via regulation, via government regulation, the government hasn't actually confiscated your land, but it's done the functional equivalent because through regulation and telling you what you would be allowed to do with this land, the government has made it worthless. So, for example, if you purchase a piece of land with the idea that you're going to reap some value from it because you think you can build on it, maybe a house, maybe a business, who knows what it is. And then the government tells you, no, by the way, you cannot build on it. You're not, you just have to leave it lying as is. You can't develop it in any way, shape, or form. Then suddenly they've done the equivalent of taking it away from you because they've taken all of the value away. So this is why you would say, okay, this is a taking. If you, government, don't allow me to sell my property – and get the value out of it that I thought I was going to be able to get because now you've made it worthless, then you have done the equivalent of taking my property even if you haven't. So it's at least good that you could plausibly argue that there's a taking. Now what the court is doing in this Murr case is saying that before what might have been a taking is now not necessarily going to be considered a taking if you happen to own the lot next door. It's pretty scary. So, okay, how's it go? So in uh, this explanation by Ilya Soman, he backs up a bit more and he goes back to the 1978 Penn Central case, which governs takings in this context in general. The Supreme Court ruled in that case that whether regulatory restrictions on property rights amount to a taking depends on their impact on the, quote, parcel as a whole, end quote. So if the regulation affects only a small part of the parcel or has an effect on its overall use and value, it will probably not be ruled a taking um, if it has little effect on the overall use and value. And then there's not going to be any compensation required. And, you know, of course, that in and of itself is an invitation for litigation, right? What is the impact on the parcel as a whole? When is it that the regulation has only a small effect on its overall use and value, right? You can see that there's trouble already there. But now it gets even more complicated because one of the factors is this issue of, um, you know, a contiguous lot, whether or not you actually own the property next to it. Regulators who want to avoid paying compensation, what they have an interest in doing now, says Selman, is counting contiguous parcels uh, as well as, uh, as, excuse me, as, as well as the one actually being restricted. So what they'd like to do is they'd like to say, well, we don't want to pay you compensation for a taking so that if you happen to have a, you know, two contiguous parcels, 
one of which a substantial portion is affected by a regulation and one of which it's not, what we want to do in order, in order to avoid paying you for the one parcel is count your two parcels together as a whole. And that's what they did in this case. Now, what do you, what do you want to do if you're a property owner under this old Penn Central ruling from 1978? What you would like to be able to do is say, okay, this part of my property is affected by a regulation. I would like to have that count as a parcel so that there is a substantial effect on a parcel as a whole and I have to be compensated for what the government has done to me. Okay, so it was already a little bit of a mess in terms of regulations and not necessarily having to be compensated depending on this language from Penn Central. And now it gets worse because of this issue of the contiguous lot, owning a contiguous lot. So what we have in this case describes someone as a 5-3 decision, as I said. Gorsuch didn't participate, but even if he had, property rights would have lost here. And they didn't want to rule in any way that would have created a bright line where you could really predict what would happen in future cases. They rejected, the court rejected on the one hand, the state of Wisconsin's position. What they wanted to say is that the courts should always treat contiguous parcels as one lot anytime that state law indicates that they should be. So state law can always say that the contiguous parcels are to be treated as one lot, that it's got absolute discretion, the state does. Supreme Court said no, you know, there is this takings clause, we at least have to keep some control over this. And then on the other hand, the court also rejected the opposite view. They said that there should, and the opposite view is that there should be a strong presumption in favor of analyzing each parcel separately. Nope, that's not going to be true either. Instead, what did Kennedy do? Kennedy is a pragmatist, and this is a clue to what the answer to that big question I had is going to be later. He's a pragmatist. He wrote the majority opinion here. What he did pure pragmatist style, created a vague multi-factor balancing test to address these issues. Now, what it tells courts to do is it says that courts must, here on out, consider a variety of factors and attempt to do what? Here's the quotation from the, from the language of the opinion. What the courts have to do is, quote, determine whether reasonable expectations about property ownership would lead a landowner to anticipate that his holdings would be treated as one parcel or instead as separate tracks. That's a mouthful in and of itself, right? Um, What are the reasonable expectations of property owners about whether that property owner, the landowner, would anticipate that your holdings would be treated as one parcel or instead as separate tracks? Now, those of you who have studied the law at all, or maybe you've heard me rant about privacy, you know that in the realm of privacy law, there is a famous reasonable expectations test from the Katz versus United States ruling in um, late 60s, late 1960s. And the Katz ruling would say basically that there's a search, you know, whether there's a search would depend on whether you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the thing that is invaded. Um, And what is a reasonable expectations 
tests usually cash out to mean. It means that you actually do expect whatever it is. And in addition, not just that you expect, but that your expectation is reasonable. And this is where the pragmatic element comes in because there's a whole list of factors as to whether, and this is what they usually want to know, whether society is prepared to accept your expectation as reasonable. That's what it meant initially in the Supreme Court privacy context. And this is the sort of factors that are coming into play here to see whether your expectation of property ownership is reasonable. So, I mean, think about this. You know, it's one thing to have a reasonable expectations test in the realm of privacy. Privacy is a little bit ethereal. It's you know, there's a lot of value judgment and privacy and stuff. And we have to live in society after all, you know, you have to bump into your fellow man. So maybe expectations, but now whether or not your expectation is reasonable in the light of other people's opinions, this is coming into play as to whether you are deemed to be the full owner of your property, whether you have a full right of use and disposal and everything else with the so-called bundle of sticks. James in the chat room is having a whole lot of fun with this. James, by the way, if you want to call in and talk about this, you are welcome to, Mr. Attorney. And by the way, I have a a proposal for you for a date to discuss your book that I want to um, get you to agree on as well. Is it ever reasonable, he asks, James, he says, to expect that the state will steal your property? Um. Wouldn't it be be bizarre, he said, if the state had to pay for a two-inch physical taking for, say, a sidewalk, but not a regulation that destroys the value of the whole lot? I mean, this seems like it's going to happen here. Um, He's saying that this test is so vague that the courts are now going to say, I know property rights when I see them, right? And, And this is what happens, right? Because the whole idea of this test is reasonable expectations, is that you have the expectation, you have an expectation of a certain kind. I have expectation of privacy, or in this context, I have an expectation that my property that I say is two separate tracks is actually going to be treated as two separate tracks, that I own two pieces of land. The fact that they happen to be contiguous shouldn't affect my expectations. I've, you know, I've gone to the recorder and I've recorded my land, two separate tracks and everything else, and I mean, that would seem to reflect my expectations, but it's not just your, as they say, subjective expectations that affects what the court is going to do. It's whether that expectation is recognized by society as reasonable. And who is it that gets to be the arbiter of whether society is prepared to recognize your expectation as reasonable? Justice Kennedy, in this case, whoever the Supreme Court justice is who is divining what society is prepared to recognize as as reasonable. So what are the factors that Kennedy says courts should look at? Maybe, you know, maybe the factors will be so clear, so easy to apply that there's really not going to be that much litigation. Uh Uh, The factors are the treatment of land under state and local law. Now think about this right there, okay? The treatment of land under state and local law. Um, that very first factor almost gives Wisconsin what it wanted, right? Because what did Wisconsin want? Wisconsin wanted a bright line rule 
that if they passed a law that said your lots were going to be treated as one piece of land, even though you haven't subdivided into two, whatever, right? Whatever their law says is the way it goes. That's what Wisconsin wanted. Kennedy says, no, I won't give you that, but I will give you as the first factor in the multi-factor balancing test the way that the land is treated under state and local law. So it's almost as good, right? It's the first factor that you look at in this multi-factor balancing test is what the law is. So, you know, imagine this. And, you know, this is why it's so ridiculous in the privacy context as well. There's been a number of, you know, law review articles written about this, about how ridiculous it is. You cannot be deemed to have a reasonable expectation of privacy simply whenever legislators get together and write a law. Um, I mean, there's one of the things that I want to talk about in today's show is now um, the TSA at the airports is starting to test out this new procedure where they're going to have you unload your reading materials. Uh, You know, just like you have to separately take out your laptop computers, you have to take off your shoes, your belts, all this horrible stuff that you have to do when you're going through the security line they have been testing at select airports throughout the United States this idea of, you know, taking your reading materials out. That can be a tremendous invasion of privacy. I mean, you've got some self-help book or something, you know, that you put down on the little conveyor at the, you know, at the security check. And everybody around you can see that you're reading this self-help book about whatever it is. Um, this is an invasion of privacy. But whether you have a reasonable expectation of privacy is just dependent on whether you have been made aware that the TSA is doing this at the airports. If the TSA tells you, well, then your expectation to have privacy is no longer reasonable. All they have to do is change the law, in other words, and then suddenly your expectation is not nearly as reasonable. That's one of the factors. Another one is the physical characteristics of the land. So, you know, for instance, if one of the lots looks like, I guess, really buildable, and maybe the other one doesn't or something. You know, there's a lot of different things that could probably go on in there. The perspective value of the regulated land. So, you know, what sort of value is actually being destroyed by the government? If they're destroying a whole lot of value, well, then I guess maybe that's just one factor that could be taken into account. The treatment of the land under state and local law includes rights, summon restrictions on land use in place at the time that the owner acquired the lots but possibly other regulations as well. So it's maybe not just the law that existed at the time that you actually made your purchase, that you made your investment, but other regulations. Relevant physical characteristics, the relationship of any distinguishable tracks, the topography, the surrounding human and ecological environment, et cetera. Perspective value includes the need to assess the value of the property under the challenge regulation, special attention to the effect of the burden land on the value of other holdings. Oh my gosh. Says though a use restriction may decrease the value of the property, the effect may be tempered if the regulated land adds value to the remaining property, such as by increasing privacy, expanding recreational space, or preserving natural surrounding beauty, end quote. That's all from the opinion. So imagine you're an attorney in real estate and you're looking at this, you're thinking this is a gold mine of litigation. 
all these phrases that I just read you in that last chunk about all the different, you know, uh, perspective value of the property factors, privacy and all this stuff, right? All of that can be litigated and argued by attorneys at the price of hundreds of dollars an hour. Vague, vague, vague. And then someone writes that even this may not exhaust the list of potentially relevant factors. The court also emphasizes that, quote, the reasonable expectations at issue derive from background customs and the whole of our legal tradition, end quote. And Soman takes this as implying that other aspects of those customs and traditions may turn out to be relevant to these reasonable expectations as well. As Soman says, it's a recipe for confusion, and he disagrees with the court's characterization of this test as so-called objective. He says, given its extreme vagueness, I don't see how that it could possibly be seen as objective. He says subjective considerations will inevitably have a substantial influence on this. So you think you own property in this country. You're counting on it having a certain value. And at a certain point you decide, okay, you know, after maybe you've held property for decades that you either want to build on it or sell it or both. And you're stopped by government and you say, okay, well, we have a takings clause in this country. It says you can't take it for public use by regulation or otherwise without compensation, without just compensation. But this opinion makes it potentially worthless. Now, James in the chat room, says, no, this one did not tell them how to use the land like zoning does but it is a land use regulation, yeah, of some kind. Um, definitely. Uh, he's, Rob says, this is a, as bizarre as charging an inanimate object with a crime. You might say not only more bizarre, but more unjust, right? It's more unjust. Um, because here you're, you're destroying a piece of real estate. You're destroying the value, value of a, re, a piece of real estate. I guess charging an inanimate object with a crime can also be as unjust given the circumstances. But um, yeah, so that's the ruling. Now, I think I see, I don't know if, I don't know if James can end up calling in or not. If you do want to talk about this, James, go ahead and let me know. But, um, you know, so, so what's the issue here? We've got property rights completely in flux because what people really thought that they owned, they don't necessarily own anymore. It can be really actually pretty much taken and whether or not it's deemed a taking and whether you get any compensation for it is now potentially affected by whether you own the lot next door. I can imagine a lot of people now, they won't want to own the lot next door. Maybe they're going to do some sort of sale of it in order to make it appear that they don't own the lot next door in order to make sure that they can retain the value of their property. There's a certain law in Atlas Shrugged, you know, where they talk about you can't have the same owner of however many different factories and stuff. And then you have these industrialists selling off parts of their holdings only so that they can still keep control over them in a certain way, though, in the hopes that they can. Can you imagine property owners doing that in reaction to this? You know, what is the reasonable expectation of a property owner? That's what your property right depends on now. Per Justice 
Kennedy. Um, so now that your property rights are up in the air, right? I mean, th- what would you do if you're in this case? You, Any time that you had been planning on doing some sort of investment that would hinge on the ability to own contiguous lots and then sell one or more of those lots off for value at some time in the future, you're going to be reticent, right? You're going to have to do a whole lot more research. You're going to have to try to predict whether the government is going to impose some sort of a regulation that would affect the value of these lots that you're thinking of investing in. And if you try to sell them off, what's the likelihood that you'd be able to get some sort of just compensation if you did? And if, you know, one lot was deemed worthless, would you be able to make enough money on the other lots to make it all worthwhile and stuff? This is going to discourage long-term productivity and investment where, you know, people do depend on the value coming from real estate, you know, the value of real estate. So then the question is, right, last week we had a whole court unanimous around free speech and we had them unanimous around free speech in the context of trademark, which you would say that's sort of a financial business realm of the law, right? It's this idea of the slants, the value of the name of the slants, this dance pop band or whatever it is that you know was using that name. They want to have that trademark. Why? Because it's worth money. And you say, okay, well, gosh, you know, the court seems pretty positive. They're upholding a principle of freedom of expression, even in this context of trademark, which is really all about business and money and corporations and profit and greed. And then here we are this week. They came out with this ruling saying, ha, you thought you owned property. Good luck. You think you're entitled to just compensation when we render your property worthless by regulation? Good luck. You thought property rights meant something in this country? Good luck. So. Here's the question. How is it that they can do these two things? On the one hand, be so good on freedom of expression and then be so terrible in this ruling on property rights. And here's my answer. I I told you that the hint was that Kennedy is a pragmatist, right? And, of course, uh, I've said as well that that reasonable expectations test in the realm of privacy is also a very pragmatic test. And I lay this out in tremendous detail, perhaps too much boring detail for you, in an article that I wrote some years ago called Pragmatism and Privacy, which was published in the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty. And I talk about how pragmatism brought about the right to privacy, and I spend some time in the article explaining how the reasonable expectation of privacy test itself is inherently pragmatic. And what does it come down to? It comes down to my reduction of my understanding of pragmatism and what the good is in pragmatism to a few sentences of William James. You know, when when you're trying to get your mind around pragmatism, it can be quite confusing because it's, you know, pragmatism, they're in favor of whatever works. Well, what works? Works by what standard? it's really hard to pin them down. So at one point when I was looking at the connection between pragmatism and privacy, I was reading into William James. Uh, There's a book 
that I looked at, and it has an essay by James that's called The Moral Philosopher and Moral Life. It happened to be in a collection that I was looking at. I think it was from one of Leonard Peikoff's books, The Will to Believe in Other Essays in Popular Philosophy. And this is where you can pin him down. This is you know, what I, what I read in James, according to pragmatism, I'm reading from my article now, according to pragmatism, the only grounds for saying something is good or bad are the demands made by the presently existing human beings around you. James writes, quote, the essence of good is simply to satisfy demand. Continuing, I write, moreover, James does not advocate the satisfaction of some demands over others based on their content. For example, based on the thing or the state of affairs that is demanded, he says the demand may be for anything under the sun. So I flesh this out. Say, for, for example, if I demand a right to intellectual property and the content of my writings because it was I who actually created them and I believe it's right for me to reap the benefits of my labor, my demand is no better, no more worthy of satisfaction, according to James, than are the demands of those who wish to, quote, express themselves by posting my writings or excerpts of my writings on the Internet, you know, for free, without attribution, etc. Now, how is a judge supposed to decide which demands he should satisfy by means of his ruling in a particular case? This is what James calls the casuistic question, to which he provides the following answer. And here's, again, quoting from James, William James. Since everything which is demanded is by that fact a good, must not the guiding principle for ethical philosophy, since all demands conjointly cannot be satisfied in this poor world, be simply to satisfy at all times as many demands as we can? End quote. So, you don't evaluate demands based on the content of the thing demanded. It's just trying to satisfy as many demands as you can. Now, I'm going to use this to answer the question. So this is, this is my answer to that question. This is not the objectivist answer to the question. This is me. Yeah, I come at it from my objectivist perspective, but this is based on my thinking about this reasonable expectations test in the realm of privacy, right? What you need with freedom of expression, right? The reason freedom of expression would be so important to a pragmatist like Kennedy is that by you expressing yourself, you are voicing your demand. It is crucial if you are a judge like Justice Kennedy, you know, for him to be able to be a good pragmatist and to satisfy as many demands as he can, he's got to be able to hear everyone's demand. You have to at least be able to express your demand. So that's a baseline in a society, even for a pragmatist, that you be able to express your demand. If you can't express your demand, then the good pragmatist judge cannot take all the demands into consideration. What does then the reasonable expectations of privacy or reasonable expectations test do, whether it's in the realm of privacy here with property, anything else, it just looks at all the different demands. Right? It, it tells the judges, hey, survey the demands. Here are some phrases that would tell you what are the different types of demands that are going to be voiced in different contexts. I mean, what is a regulation? A state regulation of property is just an embodiment 
of a majority of voters voicing their demands that property be treated in a certain way, that they get access to property in a certain way, et cetera. Um, the reasonable expectations of privacy or, or property in this context, those tests just embody an effort by a judge to satisfy simultaneously as many demands as possible. Your expectation, that's one demand, but it's not deemed any better or any worse. It's balanced against the demands of society as evidenced through the various factors that the judge lists in the text. And, you know, there's the judge, the earnest judge. He's trying to say, okay, these are the various factors in which society, you know, the various ways, right? The traditions of our property law is a way in which society has voiced its demands with regard to the treatment of property. So per the pragmatist, you don't have any sort of an absolute right to property. Your right to property has to be tempered against the demands of everybody else. It would be bad for a pragmatist to uphold your right to property. Absolutely, because your demand that your property right be protected, it's just a single demand. And it's no better merely by the fact that you invested, you've spent a lot of your time, money, energy, hopes, emotional dreams, all on this property. Nope, it's still got to be balanced against all these other demands. And those other demands are just as worthy as yours. But no, 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 don't take away rights to free speech. Free speech is important because free speech is the means by which everybody voices their demand. So that is my answer. That's my answer to the question. Why can the same justices, these pragmatic justices, why can they be so good on freedom of expression and so terrible on property rights. It's because they believe that the good is to satisfy demand. Freedom of expression is the means by which in society we voice our demands. As long as we're able to speak, as long as we are able to vote, another way to express our demands, we should be happy. Everything should be peachy, you know, peachy keen. Whatever the result of the process is, is fine because Again, according to the pragmatist, the good is to satisfy as many demands simultaneously as possible. And that's what these reasonable expectations tests do. And what I submit is that, yes, the road to hell is paved in this way if you start to think about what is required for life as a human being. Because life as a human being is going to be required, you know, is, is going to require that you are free of initiation, you know, free from initiation of force. And in order to actually have that be on an objective footing, you can't have these balancing tests that are subjected to the demands of others in society. Those demands could be anything at any time. Again, James rejects the idea and any good pragmatist is going to reject the idea that the content of the demand that there's something about the substance of the demand that's going to make it better or worse or more or less worthy of hearing, right? If you offend somebody, then that might be an argument as to why your speech should be shut down, according to a pragmatist, right? There's not, a, there's not necessarily a principle here. Now, um, actually, that's a really bad example because the court last week said no. Um, but obviously, we have some people in society doing that. So, Scratch that. This is live radio. I hope you'll scratch that. Um, 
we do have the justices at least saying that with respect to expressing yourself, even if it's offensive, they're going to let it slide. They're going to say, okay, out there in the marketplace of ideas, you take care of it. But it's only because, you know, again, this is my answer to it, that that's the way in which you voice your demands. The court thinks that you need to be able to continually voice your demands out there. That's freedom of expression. In any other realm, subject to this tremendous balancing test. Justine says, so they're vigorously supporting free speech, but for the wrong reasons. Yeah, at least some of the justices are doing this, right? So some of the justices support freedom of expression, maybe on originalist grounds, some of them even on principled grounds. But when I'm talking about the very same justices that are going to rule with an Anthony Kennedy on the Murr case, those ones, I believe, are supporting freedom of expression for the wrong reasons, or at least they're not able to distinguish the right from the wrong reasons. Uh, and, you know, I don't even know whether Kennedy himself would explicitly say this, right? But Kennedy is, is firmly in the pragmatist tradition, and anyone who really takes pragmatism seriously is going to have to, at, I think, the end of the day, agree with James that what the good is for a pragmatist is to satisfy demand. Some demand expressed by some human being. No content evaluated, whatever. Um, and you'd say, okay, well, so speech is the one exception to where everything else is subject to balancing. One person's demand against these other people's demand, and, and that's it. And the judge has to figure it out. How can you simultaneously satisfy as many demands as possible. That's why you have all this vagueness. Now, why is this terrible? Why is it untenable? Um, you know, here you are, you're a person thinking of engaging in some sort of a long-term investment. You're making a career, say, in real estate development. Maybe you want to purchase a huge tract of land and you want to subdivide it and create a new little housing development or something, and you have this vision of how beautiful it could be, how wonderful you can make life for people who go there, how you could also get rich in the process. You know, all of these happy families are going to live in this housing development. You're going to have a lot of money. They're going to have a lot of satisfaction. Their kids are going to grow up there and have beautiful lives and wonderful memories. Here's your vision. You think you want to do this. And then suddenly you're confronted by a ruling like this. What is going to happen? Do you feel safe investing your time, your effort, your dreams, your creativity? You don't, right? You don't. You don't have any security. You don't know what is going to happen to the value. Now, you might say, okay, well, you know, we have no choice. This is where we are. We're not going to go and move to another country. And this is my dream you know, working in real estate here, so I'm going to just go ahead and, and do it. But I think you are, you know, to a certain extent, you're not going to have the same enthusiasm if you are actually aware of what's going on in the law. There, are, I think there are probably a lot of people who just kind of plow on in their careers and they hire people to handle everything in the law and they say, don't bother me with what's going on unless I actually need to know about it. And they hire somebody to try to make that judgment. And they try to insulate themselves. And then they try to go about their business as if all of these potential constraints and threats and everything else on their livelihood, as if they don't exist. 
but I would think, you know, if you have this dream of creating this beautiful subdivision and you are confronted with this ruling, that's going to have a huge dampening effect on your willingness to put in the time and the energy and the creativity and the enthusiasm for that long-term project. You don't feel safe. You don't feel like your government is protecting you. You feel like it's threatening you, that you don't, you don't feel like you can pursue your dreams and invest your effort and produce value for your fellow man because you don't know that the government's going to let you do it, you know, that, that, that the only constraint on you is that you don't violate anybody else's rights. Here we're not talking about rights. We're talking about government regulations that often don't have anything to do with whether you're hurting your fellow man at all. Nothing objective here. No firm principle of private property. If, if you actually uphold private property as a right, then you wouldn't have even had the 1978 Penn Central thing, you know, where they talk about, well, how does it affect the tract as a whole? And if it's only a little bit diminution, of, you know, it, it wouldn't have even been there. We would have said, okay, the only way that you could have a ruling upheld as constitutional, is, a regulation upheld as constitutional, is if it had to do with an actual rights violation, a violation of rights, as opposed to a, quote, interest of government. But today it's interest, a government interest. What is a government interest? A government interest is just a, you know, the government supposedly representing the demands of your fellow citizens, your government, you know, stating an interest on behalf of the demands of your fellow citizens. That's, that's all that it is. And so, you know, what this ruling tells you is that if enough of your fellow citizens demand that the value of your property be destroyed, that your property be taken away from you, either literally or, or figuratively in the, in the way that the Murr case did. It's not a right any longer. We're not speaking about property rights in this country any longer. And it's, I don't even know if we're talking about a right to freedom of expression so much as it is a supreme value to the pragmatist that for a pragmatist government judge, whatever, having citizens express demands is a core basic interest of the government because what is the government's job in pragmatism? To satisfy simultaneously as, as many demands as possible. Um, I'm looking over at the at the switchboard. Nobody wants to to chime in, so I'm gonna. I'm going to kind of wrap this topic up and then I will go on to other things that I've got in the program notes. Sorry, it's been quite a big, bit uh, long-winded monologue here, but let me, let me tie this up. And if you do want to call in and give me your perspective on it, because I'm going to ask a, a pointed question here in a minute, you can. 760-888-5817 is the number. Uh, James says it sounds like a taking to him. Yeah, it sounds like it definitely was a taking, and they just want to avoid it being a taking because you have this contiguous lot. And so whether your demand is one that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable, your expectation in their language, they should just put demand. They should be transparent, in my view, and let you know that your demand, that's all they consider it. They consider it a demand. They don't. Consider the content of it, whether the content is just, right? 
I mean, you know, I, I should probably, in order to be objective for this audience, just review why we need to have property rights, right? You need to be able to hold on to material stuff over the course of a long range project in order to realize the value of your labor, of your production. And the only way that you can actually support your life is through productive effort, through the creation of value. The way that human society is, there is no way that we can produce value and have the ability to sustain our lives without the right to some property. And once you're going to say that the right to property in some form is essential to human life, what you need to do is you need to treat it as a principle. It needs to be a principle, something that's upheld consistently. And I think, I think language matters, you know, whether our Supreme court speaks to us in the language of rights or in terms of these vague, reasonable expectations test, this will affect how safe you feel in investing your time, your energy, and your creativity in creating value. And you might say to me, okay, Amy, you know, you're overreacting, you know, you should do better at dealing with periods of uncertainty, like right now, because after all, the probability is that your property rights and whatever thing you're concerned about, those are going to be protected. And after all, of course, we still have freedom of speech. I mean, you were just saying that last week, Amy, right? We can use freedom of expression to bring back property rights. But and, you know, I concede, okay, yeah, that's true. But I still wonder whether once the language that we've used to denote the principle is gone, or, you know, property rights, I wonder whether when that language is gone and it's replaced with reasonable expectations, whether that has an effect. So that even if you look at day-to-day events and you say, okay, well, probabilistically, your life is going to still be going as if you had property rights. Right. You know, the chances are I'm still going to be treated as if I had property rights, even if with this ruling, I actually don't not in principle. I'd I'd say still, if you know, if you are a thinking person, like presumably if you're listening to this show, you you're you're uh, hanging in there with me. So you are. This is going to have an effect on you. It's going to start to make you pull back on your efforts, pull back on your enthusiasm no match no no matter how much you are resolving to plow ahead you want to fight for the future etc and i think that the language that humans choose to use has an effect you know you can't just say oh well you know your life is going to be as if you had property rights and everything should be fine so th- so this raises a question and it's a little bit of a long-winded question so bear with me i've tried to break it into sentences to not overwhelm with my convoluted grammar so here goes the question You have a country, the first moral country in the history of the world, founded on the language of rights, of individual rights. However, our founders didn't fully understand what the language actually meant. And so as a result, the rights have been eroded and now have been eroded eventually to the extent that the language itself has been abandoned, as it was in this Murr case. Another example Trump, our current president, did not use the language of rights anywhere in his inauguration address. So that's the background of the question, right? This is like the people who go in a Q&A. I have a statement and a question, and it's like all statement. Here's the question. Can that nation recover? 
and live up to the potential of a nation founded on rights? Is there hope for it, or does everything have to crash and burn so that we start over? That's the question. You know, and, and you say, okay, well, because so much was good at our founding, and in fact, ours was the greatest country in the history of the world for a brief period of time, we would hope that it would be able to be repaired. Um, even on the shaky foundation, it was the greatest country in the world for a brief period of time, right? Because we use that language of rights, but there wasn't a full understanding and defense of that concept. And really, that, that was our undoing. And now we have today where the pragmatist is reigning. All I can say is, I, for me, I'm starting to get pessimistic about this. It's given the Murr opinion, also given the TSA, you know, now going through our reading material. If you look at that article, by the way, about the new TSA policy, the increased scrutiny of reading material, they're testing this policy in a few airports, and they say it's likely they're going to roll it out everywhere. And the only concern that the TSA guy expressed is whether or not they were, quote, inconveniencing passengers who were going through the security. Inconvenience. Not violation of your right to privacy or any sort of a First Amendment right to consume or, you know, consume material or express yourself or anything else. So, you know, given this context of some particularly bad news this week, I'm, I'm kind of pessimistic. And, you know, in addition, if we want to add another chunk of bad news, think about the GOP default on their ability to repeal Obamacare and replace it with anything slightly better. We've got the best person Maybe the best who has the you know the best the GOP has to offer Ted Cruz. He can't even squarely address Bernie Sanders' assertion that health care is a right. So if you look at all of these things, the Supreme Court is not talking about property rights anymore. It's about reasonable expectations of landowners. TSA is not even talking about a right to privacy anymore. It's talking about whether or not you're inconvenienced. At the airport, Ted Cruz can't even answer Bernie Sanders about whether health care is a right, doesn't even want to talk about the word rights with respect to health care. If you look at this and your mind is working like mine, you can see that this problem also could be extended to areas other than politics where we have even less of an idea what the hell we're supposed to be doing. But here we are. The language of rights is gone. Can we recover? So. Rephrasing the question, you know, once we've lost the American sense of life, we, once we've lost the implicit foundation for the concept, the language of rights on which our country was founded, and once you've lost it particularly to such an extent that the language of rights itself is starting to be abandoned, can it be recovered? Can we shore up the foundation without scrapping the whole thing and starting over? That's the question I have, and that's what I think remains to be seen with this. So that's my very long-winded answer. I did give you the answer to the question that I promised, and I gave you a whole lot more than that. I'm going to go ahead and take a call that I've got holding. Let me see if it. Okay, I think I got it. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, Amy. This is Waldo. Hi, Waldo. So did I make you completely depressed now or no? <laughs> well, um no, because you made a you made a, a very good point. So I was I was not depressed because it's 
it's depressing that things like this are happening, but it's good to always hear someone argue the idea and and say why it's wrong and all that. So if if there was no one like you, for example, talking about it, then it would be depressing because it's like the idea is just is not even out there to counter to counter um, uh, these other bad ideas. So that's okay. <laughs> I'm not depressed. Yeah, I mean, the question is, would my ideas get any kind of a bigger audience? Did I just give a presentation that would make sense to anybody outside of our community? I don't know. I don't think I gave a you know particularly necessarily objectivist answer. I explained it in terms of the Supreme Court's pragmatism, and I think I explained it in a way that other people can understand and appreciate it. But a lot of people out there themselves are pragmatists, so maybe they say, well, yeah, of course, trust the process. Right. Once right. the I mean, democratic once the democratic process is spoken, then you should be happy with the result. Yeah, I was sort of thinking about that. Like, um, you're making these great points and everything, but we all, I feel like every probably most people listening to your show agree with the points you were making. So that's why I would think like people wouldn't call in because like, yes, we agree. <laughs> like, we don't have if we call, we wouldn't be disagreeing with you. And then if that's the case, then how, then we have to basically tell this to other people to change their minds, which would be people who don't listen to the show. But when do you ever get that? When does someone ever get the chance to talk about something like that without the other person being like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. Um, so, like, yeah, I was thinking of, I was thinking about idea, how, how can we get ideas across to people who, who wouldn't, wouldn't be exposed to them, but would they even want to be exposed to them at that point? Um, right. I mean, that's not the reason I'm calling, but since we're talking about it, the reason I was calling was because um, you were talking about um, when you're talking about the founding fathers, and I was thinking back. I don't know if I heard this on the Yarn Brook show or, or somewhere that when they were writing the Declaration of Independence and the Clause of Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, there was like this debate among everyone about whether it should have been life, property, and the pursuit of happiness or something like that. Like the word property be used mm-hmm. in that back. But there, there were some, I don't remember what they were discussing or why they didn't end up adding it. And it has something to do with it. You know, it's, it's been a while. That property was it's, implied in life. Well, it's, and, it's, been, it's been a while since I've looked at that. So I, I, I couldn't give you an answer. I vaguely remember some concern that people might think they might interpret that to mean that you would have a right to some property, like a universal basic income, for example, or, or something. Um, the pursuit of happiness makes it clearer that a right is a right to action, that you don't have a right to be given stuff, but instead that you have the right to pursue your happiness and try to earn property and buy health insurance on a free market if the GOP wasn't so horrible. Right. I mean, but that now we're arguing again about, I mean, not arguing, but we're talking about interpretation then. Like, even if you put the right word in there, then it can be interpreted in different ways. Like, we, mm-hmm. I think you were talking about how, like, oh, if things were written differently or, or if, like, the laws were written differently, like, the importance of language and vocabulary to keep, to define things. And, like, now we're talking about um, literally putting the word property, property in there. And even then, it might still be in, interpreted in the wrong way, where where it, mm-hmm. where it would mean like, oh, you have the right to free healthcare, like that's your property, uh, or something like that. So I feel yeah. I mean, uh, for like, for example, <laughs> um, I've got 
Stuart, he, he's here in the chat room. He's saying now it's the left that speaks of rights. They use the language of rights. And I remember Barack Obama would use the language of rights all the time. But by rights, what they mean is stuff that poor people are owed at someone else's forcible expense. Yes, exactly. Um, oh, right, so, so Craig, in the chat room, Craig in the chat room, um, Craig is not apparently depressed by me. He already knew. He says, there is no hope. He says, furthermore, crashing and burning will not teach anyone anything. You know, Craig, I got an object lesson in that this morning. Um, I have, I have some, um, you know, and Waldo, you saw the post that I was making about California on my Facebook this morning, right? There's, you know, this bad bad stuff that's going on. Uh, You know, for now, they've shelved the plan for single payer socialized medicine in California, but it'll, it'll come back. Right. And I, there was that one person who responded saying, Oh, darn, I was going to get out the popcorn and, you know, watch California turn into Venezuela or something. And I'm thinking, first of all, I live in California, so I really don't want to watch California and I, I turn into Venezuela. And I really resent the idea of people around the country thinking they're going to get popcorn and watch us turn into Venezuela. There's real people who live here. So, hello, first of all. Um, second, second, what possibly could be achieved by watching California now turn into Venezuela. People are watching Venezuela turn into Venezuela and they're not learning. Just as Craig says here in the chat room, what, you know, is it, is it like, Oh, well, it's going to happen to people in Hollywood. So finally we had nine 11 happen to New York city, that horrible thing that people forget about how real it was actually happened. And did people learn? No, they're out there, you know, kowtowing to, Muslims and, and spreading the word Islamophobia all over the place. People don't, they're not learning from experience, unfortunately. I don't know why. And, you know, what is it that you have to do to bring something home to people so that they actually realize that the principle of rights is important to human life, that it is essential for you to be free from the initiation of force, for you to pursue your dreams, the things that matter to you. That's the thing that people need to understand at its root and that it requires treating it as a principle, you know, not just, oh, you get to do your stuff. And as long as the, you know, the laws happen to favor you right now, you're going to be okay, that you need objective protection for rights, including property over the long term. It has to be principled. This is why I'm never satisfied with privacy reform that only affects legislation, right? Um, that's not going to do us any good either. Anyway, sorry, long-winded Waldo. I'm on a rant. Uh, what, uh, what else did you call okay. to tell me? I'm sorry. Um, no, that, that was the main thing that I wanted to talk about when you were talking about language and and mm-hmm. and how we use it and how it's interpreted. Uh, I was uh, I, that's what I was calling about. Um, but I will say uh, to your point about, um, I mean, these ideas about rights and have only been around for, you know, a, a couple centuries maybe versus the whole rest of human history of collectivism, of irrationality, of um, religion has been around for so long. And we still have a strong presence of religion in people's lives, at least here in the United States. And, you know, that is a big problem for people to, you know, break free of that and learn to, you know, accept uh, the concepts of rights. Um, so it's definitely like it's like it's like such an uphill battle. You're you're like fighting millennia of bad ideas 
Um, right. And it's just not easy. Yep. And and now, like I said, while um, there's there has been some noise in the background, so I'm going to go ahead and and let you go. Uh, I, I thank you for sure, calling no in, and I do I do look forward to seeing you out in California and hopefully at the conference next year. We'll see. Um, thank, thanks again, Waldo. We'll talk some more. Um, yeah, so the concern is this fact that the American sense of life, this implicit sense of all of the ideas that defend uh, individual rights to property, um, you know, that, that wealth and production are good, that we don't envy anybody else, that we believe we are in control of our own lives and destinies. This American sense of life is eroded to the extent that now we have all of these people saying that they can make demands on other people's property and that somehow we should accept that our claim to the land that we've invested in and owned and embodied our dreams in, that our claim to that depends on the voicing of everybody else's dreams or claims. Uh, it's it's gotten to a really sorry state, and the question is, once we have abandoned that language of rights, that concept of rights, can we recover it? Even our president is not using this language. And he, I think he even had some language in his inauguration address, I have to go back and look at it, where he talks about satisfying demands, satisfying everybody's, you know, all these different constituencies. He wants to be popular. He wants to satisfy as many demands as possible. So again, that's my answer. That's how you reconcile the two. Freedom of expression is the means by which you voice your demands. And no pragmatic system of governance can work without actually hearing, at least hearing the demands. Doesn't mean your demand is going to rule the day because they're just trying to satisfy as many as possible and probably think about their own in the process. Um, Stewart agrees with me. He doesn't want to necessarily see California crash and burn, even though he doesn't live in California. So thanks very much. I'm glad you're not out there popping your popcorn, Stuart. Let me go back over to the program notes and see what else I wanted to talk about with you today. I don't think I'm going to be able to do too much justice. I mean, the FAA killing the Uber for planes is just another type of regulation. You know, somebody thought that they could create value for other people and make some money for themselves by basically doing an Airbnb sort of thing with planes where, you know, you could share your private plane and sell rides to other people privately through a little network and make some money. But the FAA, no, they want to shut this down. They want to have total control. Uh, that actually helps my argument against somebody on Facebook about that whole TSA policy. I was saying this TSA policy was reading material. Maybe it's worth a test case. And, you know, the person would say, well, how would a test case ever come up? How do you have a right to travel free of this? Cause you can choose whether to travel or not, or hire, you know, go to the airport. It's like, no, um, whenever we go to the airport, you know, unless you're fabulously wealthy, you are subject to TSA regulations. If I want to travel any place that requires a plane, I have to subject myself to these policies. You know, you, you can't have this idea that, oh, well, your Fourth Amendment rights aren't being violated so long as there is a conceivable way that you can travel from point A to point B without being subjected to this search. You know, and then it was, well, is this really a search? Yes, this is really a search. 
Everybody is routinely going to be required to remove bulky reading materials like novels and stuff from their carry-on luggage. And that means that that material is going to be out there in plain view. That's a technical term in Fourth Amendment stuff. And whatever the TSA guys see in plain view could lead to one of two things. Apparently, there's a database, and they talk about that in that ACLU article. They talk about a database that they maintain on travelers who, I think it's international travelers, who have been seen reading, quote, controversial reading material. So I come out there with Atlas Shrugged, and then they decide they're going to put a little notation in a database on me saying, I've got this thing, it's controversial. So this guy was coming in, well, it's not controversial, and there's not really a test case, and you have other options for travel. Well, it looks like the FAA has killed one of my other options for travel. Those of us who don't have a whole lot of money but would like to have the private plane experience, we would like to participate in Uber for planes. You know, these I can't remember the name of the company. I remember there was one company that did this and said, in essence, you are buying the ability to hop a ride on somebody else's private plane when they happen to be going where you want to go. That's a really cool information sharing service and let some people obtain more value. And hey, reduce the carbon footprint, right? Because when the private plane is going, it's not just carrying one person. I don't believe in carbon footprint. I'm being facetious, but you get the idea. Um, TS, uh, excuse me, Facebook hires thousands to crack down on, quote, hate speech. Yes, Facebook is a private company. It is one through which we speak a lot. It raises a little bit more concern because we have Mark Zuckerberg out there running for president. I've heard differing views among objectivists about whether Mark Zuckerberg as president would be good or bad or better than what we've got with Trump or worse. Or even Zuckerberg has been out there talking about universal basic income or minimum income or whatever you want to call it. I've heard opinions saying, well, that might be better than all the welfare programs that we have right now. To me, if you have Zuckerberg as president, that's Big Brother 1984 because of Facebook now having reached, especially there's 2 billion, B, billion with a B as in boy, 2 billion users on Facebook apparently as of the last day or two. Facebook has rolled out these little videos that you can take a look at. That's a tremendous amount of control over the delivery of content and the curation of content, which is what they're going to be doing with the hate speech. They've got a whole bunch of people who are going to crack down on it. Is the stuff that I post going to be affected? I don't know. And sometimes I think we may not even know to what extent the stuff that we post on Facebook is affected. I'm sure it's designed so we are largely unaware of the ways in which our content might be blocked by Facebook. It's a, it's a scary thing. Private company, yes, might be less private in the future. Government already has its hands in Facebook in certain ways. I've talked about that on previous shows. So it is a point of concern. Uh, Trump travel ban. The Supreme Court has reinstated key parts of Trump's executive order banning travel, I think, from six different countries. Given what the people in Iran were talking about, the end of Israel in 8,000 however many days, and the I don't mind banning people coming here from Iran. And apparently 
the Supreme Court says that they don't either unless the people who are going to come in have a certain type of connection to the United States, blah, blah. Um, it's a temporary order. And in the fall, they're going to hear the entire case. But for now, a lot of that executive order, some key parts of it are going to be upheld, which may mean that we can keep some bad guys out and be a little bit safer. So that's to the good. But Thomas warns that the language is vague and there's going to be a lot of litigation we'll have to see. There's a link in there to this new study that the Washington Post had put out there. Even moderate drinking causes atrophy in the brain area related to memory and learning. This is a big 30-year study. I think it was 500 and some odd people, and they talk about any drinking was associated with shrunken cognitive ability or hippocampal something. Uh, You have to go back and look at it. Anyway, just my posting it started this huge discussion because there have been other articles saying that if you drink a moderate amount, that it can reduce the incidence of dementia. I don't know that there's as much evidence for that as there is for this, but what there is one really good study that someone posted. And if you go to my public post on Facebook, you'll be able to find all this. I publicly posted this article on my Facebook, my personal Facebook page as well. And someone uh, put in the link, I think Jody, I think is the name. Um, there's a 20 year study that showed for some thousands of people, I believe that you live longer if you drink a moderate amount. So live longer, be dumber. How much dumber? We need to know. Uh, brain atrophy though, right? This hippocampal atrophy. This is also associated with stress. And so one person, I think it was John Wass, he asked, you know, an important question. Are there, you know, is the causal relationship the other way in effect so that people who have any sort of condition associated with the shrunken hippocampus, that those people want to drink? And of course it is. It's stress and depression and everything else. So there's a couple articles in there that I put What's the answer? Probably everything in moderation, add in some exercise, live a longer and happier life. Try to reduce stress. How about that? Which would mean probably going and living like some people have, which is not subjected to the horrible decline of the United States. Will we be required to participate in Facebook? Craig asks in the chat room. Oh my God, how horrible would that be? What I do know is that if you decide, you know, you, you're going to try to not post on Facebook for a while or something, you're going to try to turn off your Facebook. If you've allowed push notifications, Facebook will like send you these push notifications to try to get you back in again. It's really hilarious. So there's no law, but Facebook itself is designed to keep you constantly engaging in the algorithm. We are all chained to the rhythm. Ah, Roger asks a wonderful question. Do you like Haley Mary's new project? Uh, eh. um, I really like Haley Mary. I listen to the song and eh, not so much. I, I, I dread to say um, it's interesting because in the Ilya Soman write-up of the Murr case, he says, that maybe the big lesson is that you shouldn't try to do anything important on June 23rd. And 
because uh, June 23rd was, I guess, the date of this ruling, and it was the date of some other really bad rulings and other bad things that happened um, to rights in our country. And it just so happened that Haley Mary released that new project on the 23rd because the 23 chromosome, I, right? Did I listen to the meditation sermon? Is that the song? Is that something different than the song? Because I watched the video of the song. <laughs> I'm putting this in scare quotes. Um, uh, it's just not my favorite. It's just, it's just not my, you know, she talked to me a little bit about this project when I had that interview with her and, but I didn't know it was this. I didn't know what it was. And she talked about that basically perfection was tyranny in some way that human perfection was bad. So she's celebrating. Yeah, it is something different. She's celebrating human imperfection is the way that she sees it, but it's, about blood and all this it's uh, anyway 23rd i don't know well i have i have to listen more i only listened the one time and i went mm, i'm a little scared i'll take a look some more but i i love Haley mary and if i have to inter have to if i want to interview her again i'm gonna have to decide what i think about her project and what i would say about it to her or figure out how to steer the conversation away from it which I don't know he, he says Roger says I like creepy things so I think it's cool yeah okay um, okay we'll talk more we'll talk more about it California some stories about California California invested heavily in solar power solar power as we've talked about on this show before when I've had my friend Debbie, who had worked in the solar industry before, call in and talk about how inefficient the technology is, how the technology does not pay off in terms of the investment that you put into buying the solar panels, right? That the electricity that it produces does not pay for the cost of the panel. Nonetheless, state of California, stupid as it is, invested, quote, invested all of our tax money, a ton of our tax money into it, and invested so much that now there's a glut. And, of course, you can't store this electricity in any sort of batteries. So in order to have the electricity that's created by the solar panels and that's channeling back to the power companies, in order to not have it destroy our power lines, our power grid in California, we have had to offload it to other states. And, in fact, as the L.A. Times reports, sometimes other states are paid to take it. So they stole our money, they over quote invested in solar, and now they're having to steal more of our money to pay other CXS electricity while they still charge us way too much for electricity and they're always telling us to cut down and save it. That's California. California, I didn't even know about this, instituted a travel ban, official travel. There's a ban on official travel from California to states that supposedly have a poor LGBT track record, you know, protecting the rights of LGBT, so like Texas and some other states. Um, so what was my tagline on this? They try to have this travel ban, right? Uh, California had tried to sec secede from the union. So if at first you don't secede, and try to ban, right? Try, try, try to ban. Basically, you're going to ban travel. If at first you don't, you can't secede, then go ahead and try, try a ban, a travel ban. That's what they're doing. Um, 
And that will connect in a very non-obvious way to my last little story that I want to go through with you here. If you remember, the guy who is the head of the California secession movement decided that he wanted to go to Russia. Oh, by the way, there is one wonderful good news story that you have to go take a look at. It's Ayan Hirsi Ali and Astra uh, Nomani responding to readers at the New York Times uh, about this issue that they had been ignored and, and shut out by Democrats and women Democrats in particular when they went and appeared before Congress. Um, and they have some very strong language about rights belonging to individuals and not to groups. And it's really heartening to see people in the culture do that and that it's published in the New York Times. It's a wonderful piece of good news. So go take a look at that. Um, but back to this other thing, which is kind of funny. Remember the guy who was the head of the secession movement? He went to Russia to live. You think, okay, well, California wasn't going to turn into Russia fast enough, so he decided he had to go there. There's a story about Russia. Vladimir Putin has apparently decided that he needs to try to woo the young voters. I guess he's going to come up for election. I guess elections actually mean something. He has to get voters. So they get some sort of pop star in Russia to make a music video denouncing the protests of the Kremlin and everything else. It is quite humorous. Thanks to Mark Griefer for sending that in. And uh, thanks to Instapundit for telling us about Vladimir Putin's lame attempts to appeal to the younger generation. You know, imagine the younger generation actually cares about the ideas behind freedom and rights and everything else and that they're not affected by a woman parading around in a video with long legs and you know, throwing her bleached hair everywhere the way that she does. Anyway, go check it out. Have a good laugh. Check out the other music that I have there. Time to Dance is relevant to today's theme. And the Beethoven is just for fun. So thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll see you guys next week here. In the meantime, you can go to DontLetItGo.com, check out the notes, continue the conversation. Take care. <laughs>